Hello everyone, welcome back to Sabbath School from Home. So glad that you have tuned in uh, to this podcast. Uh, very glad to be here with a fascinating topic ahead of us. My name's Cameron. And I'm Luke. And I'm Lachlan. Uh, this week is on the book of Esther. Um, look, some broad stroke brush pictures of the book to provide a context before we get into some specific questions. Does the book of Esther strike you as a book about a missionary or someone on a mission or on God's mission? Hmm. That's a great question. To the extent that anyone is, it actually seems a little reluctant, um, at least at first. Uh, it, uh, let, me, let me just zero in on Esther. Esther is thrust into this story because, am I remembering it right? All of the um, young women in the kingdom, basically, are brought. Uh, verse 1 of chapter, verse 2 of chapter 2. Um, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king seems to me there was not a great deal of consent involved in this process. Yeah, and the lesson points out that Esther, even if somewhat reluctantly, was able to play a major part in biblical history. What's fascinating is that um, Esther's reluctance is not recorded um, on the instance where she's brought to the king. Hmm. I mean, he's, I mean, this is massive institutional sexual abuse, I guess you could say. Um, she... Uh, pleases the king, she marries the king. The reluctance is later on Yes, when it comes to risking a neck. Well, that, yes, and that's an interesting one because, and I think we'll come back to this, uh, let's not get too, too sidetracked right now. Um, specifically in chapter two, Esther is not involved in mission um, because it twice records, verse 10 and verse 20 of Esther chapter two, it records that she had not told anyone of her nationality and family background. In other words, she hadn't told anyone she was a Jew. Yeah. This book has, has been a point of contention for um, the Christian church for a long time. Uh, I think Martin Luther was very much opposed to it being in the Bible. The, the first Christian commentary wasn't written until the year 900. Right. So after almost a thousand, I mean, I've, a thousand I've, years. I've of, just been reading the last few chapters and i can see why martin luther was opposed to it being in the bible <laughs> what's it's what's interesting pretty horrible is that the jews really love it and the lesson mentions that um this feast that has its origin in the story of esther it's the feast of purim is yes it? yep um uh is still celebrated by some jews and and i've heard it said that the feast you haven't celebrated the feast to the full extent sort of required until you've gotten so drunk that you can't tell the difference between blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman. <laughs> when you've reached that point, then you know you've celebrated the feast properly. Well, at least at, at least it, it doesn't involve um, actually killing anyone, which is very much yeah, what well, the first, uh, the, the OG version of it was. Yeah, about. yeah. yeah. Um, and, and let's just be fully honest here. There, there would be one additional reason. Martin Luther at the time of the Reformation in Europe, in Germany, his objection to this book may not have been theological as much as it was racial. Uh, Martin Luther is a hero on many fronts, but not on his views about Jews. And the yeah. church in Wittenberg, where Martin Luther preached, still has a um, engraved in the stone uh, on the side of the church yeah, a, I've seen it. a pretty anti-Semitic decoration left there with an accompanying added much much later with an accompanying um 
uh, plaque that basically acknowledges this is being left as a record of historical the, the views that were wrong. Some, there's a carving in the side of the Christian church of some Jewish rabbis feeding pigs, <laughs> which given what the Jews thought about pigs is about as... Yeah. Fairly insulting. You know, yeah. Very insulting. And, um, yeah. Okay. So, so my comment simply is, this is a book which is a, a story of, of, of... It is celebrated by Jews. It's a, it's a story of Jewish victory. It's a story of Jewish in a way, almost sort of hoodwinking success out of what appeared at a time to be the jaws of defeat. Um, if you had particularly anti-Semitic views of the world, you wouldn't like this story mm. just for that. And I'm not trying to say that's the only problem here, yeah. but I'm just, we, we need to be, this is part of the problem. It's a very cinematic story. Um, I remember always liking it as a kid because it, it does have engaging story beats it's got three yeah. acts it's dramatic you could <laughs> yeah. make it into a very uh, a very compelling political thriller movie yeah indeed the lesson does identify one of the other contentious points about the book which is god's name's not mentioned yeah um, I was, so I was that could bring be that martin luther's problem and if that is martin luther's well, problem then then i'm more comfortable with that version of the problem can I, can I just say that this is an excellently written story on lots of fronts, and there's lots of dimensions to this we don't have time to discuss, but here's a good one for the listener to go back. Go and read the Book of Esther cover to cover. In the very first chapter, um, some men uh, are very concerned that male headship and male authority is, is upheld. Hmm. Um, because, um, uh, let me quote again. I'll quote this from chapter one. Um not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, because Vashti's disobeyed the king, uh, but against all the officials and all the people who are in the province of, of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behaviour will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. <gasps> and so and so, this is very much set up as, <laughs> as an example of, of male authority, and there is not a single competent man in the rest of the book. Um, <laughs> The king doesn't know what to do until Esther tells him what to do. Yeah. Haman doesn't know what to do until his wife tells him what to do. <laughs> every, every person, good and bad, is every male person, good and bad, in the in the rest of the story, is just totally incapable of governing them their own ways. And it's the women who are totally level headed. Yeah. This is this is a it very, is a very fascinating striking part. It it occurs to me that this book. Must. I mean, unless you're choosing to ignore what's there, and that is something people do. But this book must pose problems for the, um, the uh, uh, I forget exactly what it's called, but the, the view of the Bible as the, the infallible word of God, uh, the literal yeah. and complete, um, 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 divine... Yeah, like a kind of verbal inspiration. Not, not divine inspiration, model. but divine something else. What's it called? Dictation. Yeah, like yeah, something like that. Why? Why would God write this book into the Bible mm. that has nothing to do with God? Oh well, that's well, the interesting that's... point, isn't it? So you say nothing to do with God. The, famously, I think this book doesn't mention God, does it? That's that's noted by the lesson, but it goes deeper than that. And when when this next statement is that I'm about to present is presented to Sabbath school participants, uh, it is met with blank disbelief. No one prays in the Book of Esther. <laughs> now, where would you expect 
the prayers to happen. Well, I remember that they happen, Cam, and I know they do because I remember seeing the pictures of it in my Bible friends. Um, the <laughs> All I can say is that Revelation says it brings a curse upon people who add Ooh. to the scriptures. <laughs> so let the let the authors of the my Bible friends be careful. You, you might expect it to happen when they fast. Well, yeah, exactly. When when Esther is preparing to go before the king, and there is a a, a risk of a unhappy reception and and potential death. Yeah. So in verse um, fifteen of of chapter four, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. We'll also fast, and then I'll go to the king. Now, in any other sensible text, it would be fast and pray for three days, mm. but there's no praying mentioned. Um, the king can't sleep. In any other book of the Bible, it would say, and God caused. Mm. Mm. I remember Exodus. We talked about at one point. God yeah. caused the Pharaoh to harden his heart and do this, and all of it. God yeah. caused the Pharaoh yeah. to do it, yeah. except in one or two sentences. Here, there's none of that language. Mm. No, there's, there's not. It's not only that he's just not mentioned. He's not referred to. He's not prayed to or consulted by any of the people within the story. He doesn't pass a judgment. There are no miracles at the end of the book on whether he thinks there are no miracles. Right. So there is a, no. There could be a miracle because Esther refers to perhaps I was made queen for such a time as this. There is an oblique allusion to ah. the possibility that there was a miraculous step. Well, that's not the only. If we're allowed to bring in oblique, how oblique? How, how probable is it that the king is without sleep and happens to read the story? Yeah. <laughs> that of Mordecai saving him just when Haman's knocking on, literally knocking on the door to try and kill Mordecai. And as Morde Haman walks in the door, the king says, oh, there's someone I'd like to honour. Yeah. You know, I mean, and it's Mordecai, not well, Haman. And but that's Haman exactly, getting back to Luke's point, that is one of the bits it's, of this story that would just roll. It is exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, it well, is a good point that, yes, okay, there are some circumstances. But, but again... In any other book of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, particularly something not that far from Esther chronologically or um, consecutively, um, the language would say God yeah. caused the king to be sleepless and to read the story of, of Mordecai. God was, was with Esther. And so mm. she was chosen. It, mm. it would it would just say it. Like we've talked at length on this podcast about how Old Testament writers ascribe the actions of God to everything that happens in a story. Yeah, and there's so there's an interesting counterpoint or, or comparison point here. One of my favorite Old Testament books is the Book of Nehemiah, and the reason I like it so much is because in that book there is actually. Uh, a fascinating amount of um, autonomy, initiative. Nehemiah hears of the destroyed walls of Jerusalem. He doesn't get a message from the Lord saying, Oh, Nehemiah, go thou to Jerusalem and rebuild my walls. Nehemiah has the idea. He says, Ah, oh, this is not good. So, and then, and then also when they are rebuilding the walls, there's the beautiful mixture of him being taunted by the surrounding kings. And so he stations guards and prays. And it's kind of like this, you know, some 
less religious people would station the guards. If you imagine it in modern, in, in our society, there are plenty of people who would think rationally and station guards. There are some people who would think religiously and send thoughts and prayers. And Nehemiah does this most elegant superposition of just both at once. Why is there, you know, why, why is there either or? Yeah. The point I'm making is that in the book of Nehemiah, there is a surprising lack of God's directive. Nehemiah is making good decisions, but he's constantly mentioning yeah. God. He thanks God at the start of the story that his approach to the king went well and the king said, yes, why don't you go leave my service for a little while and rebuild the walls of your city? And so yeah. even though it's not presented as God's instruction or perhaps even as God's idea, it is acknowledged regularly that God is blessing. Well, someone, someone pointed out to me the other day that faith is a creative exercise. <laughs> so... Uh, God is inviting us to be involved in his work, not only at the execution phase, but at the the broad picture envisaging phase. The, the, yeah. So God's saying, you know, let's, let's work on this. What are your ideas? And that, and if, I, if I can just jump in and say, that is the best expression yet or quarter of what I mean when I say I'm slightly excited about this idea of the mission of God. Joining yeah. God on his mission, yeah. what you've just said captures... Yeah. In words, what I've had in there, my mind for a long time. There, there are, you know, before we dive into some more specific questions, here's a rough summary of just a few of the ways people have reconciled this problem in the Book of Esther. Um, some people have said uh, the Book of Esther, God's not mentioned explicitly, but he's obviously involved by the amazing collection of coincidences that happen and and that the story is told in the same way that we experience god we experience him somewhat mm. some some people at sometimes experience him directly but sometimes obliquely it's been read as a feminist text because it's undeniably a text that affirms even in a culture that is nominally totally male-centric mm. the women in this case are the brains both good and bad behind what's going on and that the just the people who think clearly and it's really affirming women as as people with agency do you think the author of of the book was a woman maybe oh well maybe um it's uh been seen as a type um a type of christ but no one has actually been able to agree who the type of christ is is it mordecai or or is it the king or is it, it or indeed um considering that haman was crucified who was impaled on a stick um was it haman which it's obviously a bit, that's a facetious comment. I'm not suggesting that Haman is a type of Christ. But um, no one's been able to agree exactly, the people who have thought it, that this is a story sort of foreshadowing Christ, who the Christ figure is. Then uh, there have been people who have looked for uh, God in the Book of Esther very, um, it's a bit like those conspiracy theories. You, you find the two... I can't remember what it is, but you, you, you go 40 words in from the start and 40 words in from the end and you take two syllables and you join them together and you get God's name and it's <laughs> it's all in there, but it's just sort of, you know, hidden deep. And then there are some people who say that the story may have originally been written in a way that emphasised God's involvement, but it was subsequently edited and let's say edited under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because God didn't actually feel comfortable having his name put to this story. What, what the people in this story do with their miraculous deliverance is not actually what God wants them to do because um, it finishes in a very bloodthirsty way and 
and the lesson doesn't address, and certainly my Bible friends doesn't address how it ends. Luke, how does it end? Um, very, very bloodily. So you, I mean, the the firstly, uh, I think everybody knows that Haman is killed instead of Mordecai. Um, yeah. That is the starting point, um, and just. Um, without going into too much unpleasant detail, the way that he's killed, not quick and painless. Hmm. Um, and it is what he had planned for Mordecai. So there's there's a sort of equivalence and justice in that. Yeah, but the decree has been made that, that everyone can the, kill the Jews. Yes, and then a counter decree is made that the Jews can kill anybody that they want to kill. Um, it, it turns out that... That degree coming second, that decree rather coming second, and having the obvious force of the the king's genuine desire behind it is the one that actually gets followed, and the Jews go out and kill uh, five hundred uh, people in Susa, um, all of Mordecai's sons, um, and kill, but uh, uh, at the end of one day, they yes, that's enough. in one day, um, and then the king checks <laughs> in and just goes, that that was a lot of people. Um, <laughs> that they killed just here. Do you think they did that everywhere? And the queen was like, um, yes, and also, can we do it again tomorrow? And he was like, sure. Uh, so <laughs> they go and do it again tomorrow and kill another 300 people in Susa and approximately 75,000 uh, throughout all the provinces of the empire. Now, it says 75,000 of those who hated them, uh, mm. their enemies. Yeah. It's, it's emphasized just... that they're killing their enemies. This is still very much a case, though, of the victim becoming the perpetrator. Well, that is an interesting uh, concept to ponder. Mm. Uh, I mean, it reads it reads in the context of the Book of Esther like a bit of a polit. Is this a phrase? Is this a term? Political cleansing. Well, I mean, it's it was a racial cleansing. It, it, a bit it was. Too, it was. Yeah. The it much is made of Haman's ethnicity. Uh, it doesn't mention mm. the ethnicity of the 75,000 people they killed, and there was presumably that wasn't a single group. Um, al- yeah. Although, you know, I know very little about the internal politics of the Persian Empire. Uh, maybe the Jews were were opposed by a, an ethnic group that they then cleansed instead of being cleansed, which, to be clear, would also be bad. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. the, argu- the argument is not... Uh, at any point that um, uh, it would have been right for the Jews to have been killed in this way. Mm. That would also have been bad. One, being a Christian, hopes that there would be some other outcome rather than just these two, the slaughter Mm. on one hand of the Jews or the other hand of their enemies, some other outcome that doesn't involve literally tens of thousands of people being murdered. I kind of like the idea, Luke, that, uh, and this is, you know, I'm not suggesting this is what the Book of Esther has to be, but it is a way of reading it that I find the easiest, is that, you know, there are all those coincidences, and Esther does fast for three days, and you can imagine the story being written up, and they are very Jewish. They're, they're being persecuted because of their nationality. These are people who identify strongly as Jews. It would be very odd if they didn't pray. Mm. Maybe it was written up as a very religious thing and God's deliverance. Mm. Um, and at the time, the people were super enthusiastic about their victory, and you know God's done what He did to the Egyptians, and mm. He's mm. done what He's yeah. You know, um, and it was written, and then perhaps later on, when the blood had settled, 
down a little bit, maybe a few decades later, you can imagine someone looking over this and saying, actually... We don't look real good in, in this we, story, do we? Well, if, if what we did was what God wanted us to do, then he doesn't look very good. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a retrospective editing where someone is saying, actually, um, this had all the potential to be a, a, a situation in which mm-hmm. God's will was... in which God was expressed to the world. And um, we just totally messed it up at the end. We 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 used his deliverance as an opportunity to go out and persecute. So, yeah, I, I, look, I think it's I think it's really significant the specific order of events. So there's I want I want to pull out some specific verses. Esther eight, um, verse uh, sixteen and seventeen. Right. Um, so this is essentially after the second decree has gone out. Right. Um, in every, the Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honoured everywhere. In every province and city, wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday. And many of the people of the land became Jews themselves, for they feared what the Jews might do to them. Hmm. That feels very significant. Coming over... Well, maybe this, what a mission. What a mission. This is all <laughs> yes, we need to well, do to get people into the church. Is, is, is to, to make them terrified you know, of... of how we might murder them if they don't <laughs> i mean that was essentially the um the evangelical approach of the crusades yeah yeah so <laughs> and the spanish inquisition it's not as though it hasn't been tried but coming over to chapter nine then so on march 7 the two decrees of the king were put in that effect uh, on that day the enemies of the jews so this nobody's been killed yet right the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered the enemies. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them, right? So they gathered together to attack anybody who tried to harm them, but no one could make a stand against them for everyone was afraid of them. So nobody tried to harm them. Hmm. And all the nobles of the prom, reading verse three, and all the nobles of the provinces, the highest officers, the governors and the royal officials helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai. For Mordecai had been promoted in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout all the provinces and he became more and more powerful. Hmm. Right? So the, Jew, the, the threat is over. Everybody knows the king is on the Jews' side and nobody has dared attack them. And then, starting verse five, the Jews went ahead and struck down their enemies with the sword. Right? So you can't say it was self-defense. The story, the narrative, makes it quite clear that they were safe. The danger had been averted just by the action of the king in sending out that second decree and making it really clear, giving the Jews permission to defend themselves and making it really clear he was on their side. That was job done. Protection granted. Victory won. And then, after that, they went out and killed 75,000 people. Maybe there were yeah. people who deserved to be killed. I don't know. But, but, but it wasn't self-defense. And the narrative makes it quite clear that it wasn't self-defense. Let's not get into the, the can of worms of who deserves to be killed. Um. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm, ju- I'm just pointing out that the, the narrative could have excluded that detail or made it less clear that the act of defending themselves and the act of killing the 75,000 enemies were separate acts. Yeah. Yes. This was more than self-defense. Um, uh, right. Um, I think we've more than adequately explored, at least for a brief context of why this book's complicated. Uh, what does it tell us about mission? Yeah. Um, well, I think some of the obvious things, like like 
killing everyone is the way that we'll evangelize the world is is clearly just a a, a trivial falsehood. Um, I think one of the things though that is course, really really deep here. Just hang on, luck. Yeah, it's not so trivial. We don't have to kill them. We can just tell them that God's going to kill. Them. So at, at pride parades, we can stand there with posters of hellfire. Um, mm. You know, is is that really so different? Um, you know, we're not actually the one delivering the blow, but there are Christians everywhere who are pretty glad that other people are. Yeah, um, not that's make true. It, I think so. uh, to to be as generous as possible to that kind of thing. Um, if you kill someone, you take away their chance to change. If you perceive them to be doing something that you think is wrong and you hold a placard warning them of God's displeasure, then you're technically inviting them to cease doing the thing that's wrong. Um, it's a very thin, pedantic quibble to, <laughs> to attempt to yeah. cling to. but um, it, it, may, it may spring from a similar state of mind yes. towards them. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, vengeance is such a natural human thing it features in so many bits of famous literature um perhaps none treat the topic better than the count of monte cristo but that's a very long book and we certainly don't have time for that here in this podcast i, I, I will um, pose a question on that question which is how do we know from this book that what mission isn't is looking out for ourselves, doing whatever we want, and then calling it mission afterwards. Because mm. that's what the book seems to imply. Like, if we just looked at Esther and go, what does this teach us about mission? What it teaches us is, yeah. look out for yourself, destroy your enemies, um, mm. call, call it your purpose and, and your mission. Say that's why you were put in the position of power, so that, mm. you, could, so that you, could le you, know, you could bring about the death of your enemies. That's mission, according to the book of Esther. How I mean, that's not consistent with what we believe God's mission to mm. be. How do we reconcile? Maybe one of the um, uh, things to take away is that the church is never, and individuals in the church and me as a person, maybe I'm never more vulnerable to um, abusing the freedoms God's given me mm. than after a successful mission episode. What I mean is, you, you know... It, Esther does so much stuff, which is good. Mm. It didn't have to end that way. Like I, we don't reach some sort of holy nirvana state where we have suddenly impervious. We've done. We're so good at doing God's mission that mm. Mm. we can just sort of kick back and relax because, of course, what we want is what God wants. I think that's a healthy check and challenge to ponder. Um, I think the other issue here is if we if we are willing to approach this book from the perspective informed by the New Testament, then we've got to critique Esther and perhaps point the finger pretty squarely at Mordecai as well. Let's say Esther acknowledged the good fortune and blessing of God, even though she didn't, in the, in the text of the book as we read it, there's no acknowledgement verbally of God. Um, it seems that she didn't have a particularly clear picture of God's mission in the world. Jesus comes and upends so many things, right? I mean, Jesus's engagement with non-Jews is striking. It's, it's, it's offensive to his Jewish contemporaries, um, even to his friends. You know, the disciples are stressed at times by Jesus' engagement with those on the outside, ritually unclean, foreigners. Um, I mean, 
So, so very clearly, very clearly, if we're going to take Jesus as a better and more profound revelation of God and God's mission, then we have to see in Jesus a critique, a critique of lots of this stuff that comes in the Old Testament. You know, as you were describing the possible, the, the hypothesis that this is a little bit edited and may have originally been written to celebrate God's role in this bloodthirsty victory and at a slightly later, more reflective moment being edited under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to sort of point out, hey, actually, this attitude of vengeance and this, you know, reality of of just bloodshed might not have been God's vision of the the, the best outcome of this story. Um, if that is even slightly true, then you have to see in this book of Esther somewhat of a critique of the way some of the stories are told in Exodus and Joshua, um, you know, of the... It's not the only time. And I know this may cause some distress to, if you've grown up and been in, taught very uh, strongly that the Bible is God's words. Um, you know, there's that saying, the Bible is God's word, but not his words. Hmm. Um, it is. It is like all God's... When he works with people, he works with imperfect people, mm. um, and he's chosen to do that. Um, you know, this would not be the only case where things happen. There's that fascinating story of David taking a census, mm. which in the book of Samuel, uh, David is punished with a plague on Israel sent by God. Mm. And in the book of Chronicles, the same story is told, and David is punished with a plague sent by Satan. Mm. Now, that's a pretty first-order theological confusion. Was it from God or was it from Satan? Um, and the Chronicles account is written later. Mm. Um, it seems by then people had realised that God's not really so much into sending plagues on an entire nation just because the king decides to take a census. Mm. Um, so, and, and <clears throat> as Adventists, we believe in present truth. We believe that there is truth we're still yet to learn, yep. which means there is truths we know that people in the past did not know. Yep. The truth's unfolding. So I'm not too threatened by the idea that maybe... You know, the Book of Esther is that point of awareness where they're beginning to realise yeah. that. And there's a more deep, there's a more deep kind of issue here. the 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 arc of the narrative of the Book of Esther falls into the extremely tempting human reality that if I sense a blessing upon me, I instinctively think that that blessing is because I am special, and because I'm special, the blessing is to somehow give me an advantage. Whereas right, 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 right back, and we've talked about this at length many times on this podcast, right back at the start of the Jewish story with the call of Abraham, the blessing is something that is meant for the whole world. God says, through you, I will bless the whole world. Esther, the book of Esther, the actions of Esther are failing to remember that fundamental reality there is an what i'm saying is there's an element of selfishness here we see it in the gospels the rich young ruler comes to jesus and asks the question what must i do to be saved i actually think that we see it very very commonly in most of the conventional expressions of um protestant christianity where the emphasis is on me focusing on my personal salvation whether it's what I must do or not do, whether it's what I must say or not say, it, it's 
It could be all about grace. It could be all about works. But the problem with the grace versus works argument that has been raging for a long time in many churches, and our Adventist church has certainly participated in this conversation, is that the entire conversation, whichever point you land on that particular spectrum, is still assuming that the dominant question needs to be, how am I saved? And I wondered to myself whether the more useful question might not be effectively what Jesus throws back at the rich young ruler, which is, hey, have you ever wondered how you might be able to save others? <laughs> and, and, you know, I just, I reflect on the, the bizarreness of participating in a religious community with so much emphasis on love, on generosity, on, um, on the, the evils of selfishness. And yet for the underlying primary driver of the of that entire community is is in a sense a kind of selfishness and if anyone who's listening to this thinks that i'm taking this a bit too far just remember the story of moses who comes down from the mountain and the israelites are worshiping a golden calf and god says i'm going to wipe them out and moses could have said you're right god these people are evil let's let's see if we can do better but moses doesn't just argue with god and say hey don't wipe them out that would look pretty bad for the other people watching moses actually says if you need to Blot my name from the book. It's a weird expression, but it's if there's any sense in which it's connected to pictures in the New Testament about books of life, it's an extremely self-sacrificial statement for Moses to make. And I wonder to myself how many conventional expressions of Protestant Christianity would resonate with that level of self-sacrificial uh, protest against God's statement of destruction. Certainly the book of Esther doesn't reveal that kind of attitude, but God, Jesus does. In the Gospels, Jesus does. And that's yeah. that's what's so um, compelling to me about this observation. Yeah. Right. This is then our prayer and our challenge. Um, whatever we do, be it in mission or otherwise, let us remember that any good fortune that comes our way or any divine blessing, even if we are not clear, mm. even if we don't get that word that says it's from God, um, uh, it is ours to use. Yes. Um, and and there's a verse I've just tried to find, and it was texted to me by a friend, and I can't put my finger on it. Um, I think it's a translation in the message where Paul says, good works are good in themselves. Hmm. As in, they're not just good because they <laughs> don't worry about whether you're saved or not. <laughs> the, the thing itself is good. Yeah. I mean, the, so, um, yeah, and that bringing back to Abraham, like I thought was very powerful, um, that the... the, the any blessing God has given us, any sense in which we're chosen, mm. um, only finds full fulfilment when the good that he brings to us is used to bring good to other people. Yeah, yeah. well, there's so much more that we could say, but um, I wonder if that's a, a good place where we could wrap this episode up. I think it is. I think it is. Um, thank you very much for uh, listening into this discussion. Uh, the conversation is a little one-sided not between ourselves but between us and you because we're publishing the podcast so uh, but you can participate by uh, emailing us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com if you have any uh, thoughts or feedback uh, then uh, or any ideas you want to share with our listeners then uh, please do that um, and join us again next week mm -hmm.